Great to see all of you today. I'm uh, glad to have the opportunity to speak to you again this morning. Proverbs chapter 3 will be there in just a moment. Proverbs chapter 3. This is our uh, the number 6 in our series on the book of Proverbs that we've been uh, started just a few weeks ago. We'll be in Proverbs chapter 3 again in just a moment or two. <clears throat> Some of you may remember the name Larry Burkett. Uh, particularly if you're in my generation or so. Larry joined the Air Force after high school. He worked in the Strategic Air Command. After his time in the military, he worked for NASA in the space program. Then he ran an electronics company, became quite successful. But he came to know Jesus Christ as a Savior in the early 1970s and became very interested in the Bible and finances. And, and in 1976, he founded an organization called Christian Financial Concepts, some of you may remember hearing him on the Christian radio station out of Haver back in the 1980s and 90s. He was on for many years there. His, show, his radio show, Money Matters, was on every day on the station out of Haver. I think there's a, uh, there's a, uh, uh, a little translator in Browning, there's one in Cutbank, there's one in Shoto, there's one in Conrad. They're all over the area here out of the, uh, the Haver radio station, KXCI. And uh, Larry Burkett was on for over 20 years, Money Matters, every day at either 1 or 1.30, uh, and actually was broadcast on a, a, over a thousand different radio stations a day. He had an estimated two million listeners. Uh, he battled cancer, other health issues, and the Lord took him home to heaven on the 4th of July of 2003. He was only 64. A couple of years later, uh, or a couple of years before he died, Christian Financial Concepts uh, merged with Crown Financial Ministries, which is still on the radio at the same time slot, I believe. Well, back in 1971, Larry Burkett was at a men's Bible study. He was a relatively new follower of Jesus at that time. Larry mentioned to his Bible study friends that he thought there must be probably about a hundred different mentions of money issues in the Bible. And one of the men there challenged him and said, well, you know, Larry, I just, I just don't think money's that important to God. Well, Larry went home and began reading through his Bible, highlighting every passage that referenced financial issues. And he found that, no, there weren't a hundred mentions of money. There were actually about a thousand references to money issues in the Bible, second only to the subject of love. Interesting. The number two topic mentioned in the scriptures is related to finances in some way. You say, well, why, why would that be? Well, because, because money is where we live every day. It's a, it, it's a necessary part of life. It's crucial to our existence. You've you got to have a certain amount of it or you starve to death. Our, our entire life is governed by figuring out how to generate enough income to buy food and clothing and shelter and all the other stuff that makes life comfortable. Uh, so money is, is a huge part of life. Thus, it's one of the Bible's most common topics. And as a part of his research, Larry Burkett sorted out all these references by, by topic, as the Bible talked about these money issues, borrowing and lending and saving and spending and investing and even stealing and cheating and so forth. And he later published a book on his findings. I've got the book. It's called The Word on Finances. He wrote a number of other books on financial issues. By the time he went on to be with the Lord, there were about two million copies of his books floating around the English-speaking world. 
Well, Larry Burkett used to say, one thing he used to say quite often, he used to hear him say it on the radio often, money is just a barometer of what's going on in our spiritual life. You know, he said that Jesus never said money or material things were a problem. He said they were symptoms of real problems. And Jesus constantly warned us to guard our hearts against greed and covetousness and ego and pride because those are tools that Satan uses to control and manipulate us. Uh, that, and that is certainly true. Money is, is, is not, there's no problem with money. There's nothing immoral about money. Money is just a barometer of what's going on in our spiritual life. What we do with it, what our attitude is toward it, how we handle it, all of those things just tells what's going on in our hearts. In one of Jesus' parables in Luke 16, when he came to the application part of the parable, by application part, I mean because of the truth of the parable, this is what you should do. And Jesus said this, he said, He who is faithful in what is the least, meaning small things, is also going to be faithful in much. And he who is unjust in what is least will also be unjust in what is much. In other words, Jesus said, if, if you're faithful and honorable in little things, you'll be faithful and honorable in big things. And so he went on to say, therefore, if you have not been faithful regarding financial things, material possessions, who will commit to your trust true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what belongs to another person, who will give you what is your own? And Jesus followed up by that same famous or well-known teaching. We've all heard the phrase, you can't serve God and money. In other words, Jesus is saying, if, if we don't manage the physical, material, financial, earthly things that God gives us and use them for his glory, then why should he entrust us with more or with things that are eternal in value? Because ultimately, we are here to glorify God and to serve Him with everything that, that He has entrusted to us. We call it stewardship. It's the, this Bible concept of stewardship, meaning that we manage what God gives us for His glory. He owns everything. He just gives us material possessions to manage for His glory. And here in our passage in Proverbs chapter 3, we are going to build on Solomon's instructions to his son that we began to study last Sunday. We want to reference these famous verses and read them again. We looked at them last week, starting in verse 5, if you have your place there in Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 and 7. He says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Remember last week, I gave you a memory assignment. If you, me if you hadn't memorized those verses, that you should memorize those verses. I won't ask you if you did it or not. I'll just ask you again. Have you memorized them yet? Proverbs 3, 5, 6, and 7. If you never memorized it, boy, I would encourage you. The life-changing verses. If we will memorize them and, and, and live what they say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. Don't be wise in your own eyes. And the question we're going to look at today is, is how do we acknowledge God in all our ways? That first phrase in verse 6. In all your ways acknowledge Him. How do we do that? How do we recognize God in every part of our lives? Well, Solomon tells his son to acknowledge God when we are delighted 
and to acknowledge God when we are disciplined. And we're going to take those two thoughts and expand and build on them today. Our delights and our disciplines are both coming from God. Are, are we recognizing God's work in our lives in both kinds of situations, when we are delighted and when we are disciplined? Let's read verses 9 through 12. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. There are a couple of interesting principles that are not expressly stated in verses 9 and 10, but they are very clearly implied. The first one is this. Private ownership is ordained by God. It is not a sin to personally own something. You, you can't give something that doesn't belong to you. And here he says, honor the Lord with your possessions. You know, throughout the scripture, private ownership is just kind of assumed. People bought and sold land and houses and livestock and tools. You traded and you bartered and you, you bought and sold all kinds of things. In fact, the, the very phrase in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, that only means something if there's private ownership of stuff. Honor the Lord with your possessions only means something if there's private ownership of material things. And the only reason why I, I'm, I'm emphasizing this with you this morning for a moment is because in our modern world, there is a growing attack on the concept of private ownership as though it is somehow immoral to own things, or, or it's somehow immoral to work and save and increase your material possessions. It is not. Private ownership is ordained by God. It, it is the way that the world is supposed to work under the authority of God. God's way is to work and earn and provide and save and give and manage it all for the glory of God. Uh, but private ownership is ordained by God. There's a second thing that isn't specifically mentioned flat out here, but is certainly implied in our text, and that is giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship. Uh, the word honor in this verse means to give weight to, to make it a priority, to, to show the worth of something. It, it is an, in the Hebrew language, it is an active intensive verb, meaning to constantly and with great zeal to show the worth of something. So Solomon is saying to his son, you should constantly and with great zeal show the value of who God is by the way you manage your possessions. Which brings us to the next phrase there. He says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. Now we don't use that expression in our modern world. But the first fruits, uh, that to an Old Testament Hebrew person, that concept of first fruits, well known. It's written right into the law of Moses, the, the, the Torah, as we've spoken of in past weeks. Now that term first fruits refers to the firstborn of the flocks and the first 
agricultural produce that was gathered at harvest time. It was the first thing that you harvested. It was the first calves that were born, the first lambs that were born. That was the first fruits. You may remember there were, there were five primary crops in ancient Israel, uh, wheat, barley, grapes, figs, and olives. Now, there were other things that they grew, but those five things, wheat, barley, grapes, figs, and olives, were, were the five main crops in ancient Israel. And, and Solomon said, honor the Lord with the first fruits of all your increase. And that concept, that teaching of first fruits, teaches us several things. The first and most obvious implication of the term first fruits is that we should give to God first. And too often, even in our modern world, even though we're not really agriculturally based, we have a very monetized society, everything runs on money and all of that, but, but too often we, we take what we receive and we spend it on all of our bills and all of our needs and all of our wants, and then if we think we have something left over, we give it to God. And we think we're honoring God by giving Him what we have left. But God is not honored by our leftovers because it is an act of faith to give to God first. You know why it's an act of faith? Because you've got to trust God to see if you're going to make it the rest of the month. Instead of saying, I'm going to spend everything I think I need to spend, and then if i got anything left over, I'll give it to God. God says, hey, I want you in faith to give to me first. And you say, well, if I do that, I might not have enough. That's why it's an act of faith. To give to God first. And even back in the agricultural days, you didn't go down to the bank and get a loan and, 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 and import stuff from 500 miles away. I mean, if your cash, if your crop failed, everybody was starving to death. In ancient Israel, I mean, I mean, if they had a drought and they, and they got no wheat after everything was used up, everybody was starving to death. Remember when there was the famine in the land of Palestine and, and, and God had placed Joseph in the position in Egypt to, to store up all of that grain. And Joseph's brothers came down several hundred miles looking for grain to buy. I mean, you just didn't stick it on a semi and import it in from someplace. And, and so when, when God says, give me the first of your produce, it was an act of faith. You see, we should honor the Lord by putting Him first in everything. And that includes the first fruits of what we produce. The bottom line is that the first portion of everything we receive belongs to God. It doesn't belong to anyone else, even an angry creditor. It belongs to God. And God is honored with our possessions when we give to Him first. The first fruits, as I said, it was the first produce to be harvested. It was considered to be the best the ripest, the strongest, the healthiest. The first fruits were not merely about what came first. It was also the concept of the best of one's produce. So to give God your first fruits was to give God your best. <clears throat> God was not honored by what was mediocre or secondhand or throwaway. God wants our best. The prophet Malachi, he really had a very scathing message to the people of Israel. And right in chapter 1 of Malachi, let me read you a couple of verses. God is speaking through Malachi to the nation of Israel. And he says this, he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then, God says, if then I am the father, where's my honor? If I am the master, where's my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name, 
But the priests say, how have we despised your name? God says, by offering defiled food on my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? God says, well, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? If you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor and see if he accepts you or shows you favor, says the Lord of hosts. God was saying to them, hey, he said, you are, you are coming into, into my temple and you are offering a sacrifice to me, but you're bringing me all the, blind, all the blind sheep and all the lame ones and all the crippled ones, and you're offering those as sacrifices to me. He said, take those down and try and pay your bills with them to the people you owe money to. See if that works. Here, I owe you a few bucks, I'll give you a blind, I'll give you a blind horse. Oh, I owe you some money, I think I'll give you a crippled lamb. You guys say, wait a minute, I'm... I don't want a crippled lamb. God says, neither do I. <laughs> see, see if, if we are trying to honor the Lord, he deserves our best. So God is honored by when you give to him, to giving to him first. He's honored by what you give to him, our best. But God is also honored in how you give to him. The first fruits were given to acknowledge God as the source of all things. And to give thanks to God for His grace and His goodness and His generosity. That's why it's an act of faith and an act of worship to give to the Lord. And that needs to be our attitude when we give to God. Second Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7 says, Each one of us should give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He's simply saying God wants glad givers who give cheerfully, not because it's a grudging duty, not because somebody twisted your arm. See, God, God loves it when we count it a joy to give to Him. So we don't, another thing to, to understand about the first fruits is that we don't honor the Lord with our first fruits because God needs it. That's not really the issue. Psalm 24 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they who dwell, all who dwell therein. God owns everything. Psalm 50 verse 10, I like, he said, God says, Every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Verse 12, God says, If I were hungry, this is in Psalm 50, great psalm. God says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 8 says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. So God's saying, I own everything. I'm not asking you to give to me because I need it. All of you belong to me. The whole world belongs to me. All the cattle on a thousand hills, they're all mine. Every beast in the forest is mine. All the silver and gold in every mine, it's all mine. I, I, I have created all of this. He said, I'm not asking you to give to me because I need it. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, Paul says, What makes you differ from someone else? And what do you have that you have not received? In other words, God says, It's all mine and I'm just giving it to you to use for my glory. He can give it, He can take it away. As the famous line by, by Job, He said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God doesn't personally need it, he's God, but, but, but it is his method of funding the work of his kingdom. So we are to honor him with our possessions, Solomon says, and with the first fruits of all of our increase. But in verse 10, that is not a supernatural lottery. Where he says, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. 
It's not a supernatural lottery where you always win big when you give to God. Some people preach that. Oh, throw a little money in the offering plate and be like a seed. God's going to expand it. You're going to get rich. Okay, verse 10 is not a supernatural lottery. Solomon is not, as we mentioned last week, he is not preaching the prosperity gospel to his son. He is saying that over the process of time, God will bless you when you honor him with your possessions and your first fruits. You see, if your barns are full and your vats are full of, of fresh squeezed grape juice, which is what new wine is, then, then, then you are a blessed person. But you know what? You have also planted and pruned and harvested. God isn't throwing dollars at you while you lie around in the shade watching television. You, 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 you are working, and, and God is blessing your efforts. And He is rewarding your diligence and your management and your oversight. And it is a delight to enjoy the blessing of God on your labors. And I'll say further, if you are honoring the Lord and you need manna from heaven, you need something to happen that is just beyond your ability, you need manna from heaven, God can bring it. He gave the Israelites manna for 40 years, from, from starting in Exodus chapter 16 and going all the way until Joshua chapter 5. That whole section of time, 40 years, God gave the children of Israel manna every day. And, and the day after, the very day, according to Joshua 5.12, the day after they began to eat the produce of the land of Canaan, God ended the manna. Now they had available food they could gather. They didn't need the manna, so God stopped it. So don't look at verse 10 as a supernatural lottery. It, 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 is, it is the blessing of God when we honor Him, and He brings those blessings to us. He honors our efforts. He honors our work. He opens up new job opportunities. He improves our standing in life. Well, when we are operating God's way, He blesses that. So, so we acknowledge Him in all of our delights, in all of those blessings, when things are going well, when the finances are good, when the crops look great, when the harvest is wonderful, we acknowledge God and His goodness. And that might actually be the easy part. Because in the next section there, Solomon says, can we acknowledge Him when He disciplines us? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest His correction. For whom the Lord loves, He corrects, just as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Can we acknowledge God when he disciplines us? Can we say as Job said to his wife when he was suffering, he said, should we accept good from the hand of the Lord and not adversity? Now we're not going to spend an enormous amount of time in verse 11 and 12 because the writer of Hebrews quotes these verses in chapter 12 of Hebrews and about six weeks ago, as we were examining that passage in Hebrews 12, when we were con uh, concluding our long study on faith, uh, we, we preached on that passage referenced right here that's in Hebrews chapter 12. That message was called Faith in Discipline. It's available online if you wish to hear it. But we will repeat, based on this, based on this passage, that there are two dangers, two wrong responses to God's discipline. He says, don't despise it and don't detest it. By despise it, he means uh, don't reject it. Don't, don't harden your heart toward it. Don't stiffen your neck toward it. Don't ignore it. Uh, don't, don't detest what God is doing when he, when he brings challenges to your life. 
Don't be uh, to detest it means to be disgusted by it, to get weary of it, to get sick of it all. Just throw in the towel and say, I've had it with God. Here I've been trying to serve God and bad things happen to me. I'm just, I'm just done. I'm, I'm throwing in the towel. I've had it with God. And he says, no, no, no. Don't, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't detest his correction. Why? That first, if you're a if you're a Bible highlighter, underline that first or highlight that first phrase in verse twelve. Whom the Lord loves, He corrects. As many Bible teachers have said, trials can make you bitter or better. Don't focus on yourself or what you think you deserve. Be encouraged. Have confidence in God because God's discipline proves that He loves you. It proves that you belong to Him. Whom the Lord loves, He corrects. God God disciplines all of His children. And if God doesn't discipline us, then it means He doesn't love us and we don't belong to Him. And that is a terrifying thought. If we truly know the Lord, He will discipline us. Whom the Lord loves, He corrects. You say that even with parents. If you really love your kids, you'll correct them. Just like, just like God does. God does not just leave us wallowing in our sin. Say, oh, I guess they're on a tough week this week, aren't they? Oh, well. No, I mean, I, I, it looks like they're going to sin. Oh, well, I guess I'll just let them do their thing. Now, God, God's always in the process of correcting us and redirecting us and drawing us back in line. And I assure you, if you can roll along through life and do whatever you want, and God never convicts you. And God never rebukes you. God never challenges you. Regardless of how you live or what you do or say. If, if you can do that and you never experience the chastening of God, the discipline of God, then you better check up on your salvation. Because everybody that God has a relationship with, everybody that God loves, gets disciplined. So Solomon says to his son, Can you acknowledge God in all your ways, even when God is disciplining you? Do we acknowledge God in our delights when things are going well and our our vats are overflowing and the barns are full and the bank account's doing great and everything, all my cars are running and everything's going well? Woohoo! Praise God! Can we acknowledge God when we delight? And can we acknowledge God? When we're being disciplined, when when God is correcting us. If we can, then we are on the path to, to great usefulness by the Lord and great blessing of God. Are you are you absolutely certain that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? You know, you you can't live Proverbs three, five, and six unless you have a faith relationship with the Lord. You can't honor the Lord with your possessions if you have never been forgiven. You will never experience the loving discipline of the Lord unless you belong to Him. Because you're under God's judgment if you haven't come to Him in repentance and by faith received His forgiveness. But if you truly know Him, then trust Him with all your heart and acknowledge Him in all your ways, in all your delights, as well as in all God's discipline. And he will smooth out those paths for your feet. Let's pray.
We know, Lord, the test of what we are as followers of Jesus often is how we deal with troubles and trials in life. Can we still acknowledge you when you discipline us? Or do we just acknowledge you when we think things are going well? We see this great challenge from Solomon to his son. Acknowledge God in our delights and acknowledge God in our discipline. Because it proves that we really belong to you. It proves that we have a relationship with you. It proves that you love us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look at our lives as short-term and temporary. Just a time here in this earth for a few decades that you give us as we prepare for eternity. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on eternity. Not be all wrapped up in the things of this life. We pray, Lord, for anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray that they will learn to trust in the Lord with all their heart, starting first by casting all their care on Him and asking for forgiveness, coming to Christ for salvation. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us. Lord, we have our ups and downs. We have our delights and we have our disciplines. We have the challenges that come to us. We have the blessings. We're going to have all of that in this old sin-cursed world. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that you are always there with us. May we trust you with all our heart, and may we acknowledge you in all our ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.